This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We're in the midst of a series of studies in Matthew. Today we're in chapter 25, looking at verses 14 through 30. This is in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus spoke to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, just outside the east wall of Jerusalem. And um, we pick up in verse 14, Jesus says, For it, uh, verse 1, makes it clear, he's referring here to the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to this passage. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves here and to measure ourselves by your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This parable of our Lord Jesus follows the parable of the ten virgins or ten bridesmaids that we looked at last week and has some similarities to it. Both uh, have to do with the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both have to do with members of the visible church. But the lesson of each, of course, the point of each is where they differ. The parable of the bridesmaids or the ten virgins teaches us to be prepared for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, specifically a delayed return, to be prepared to wait for that return, uh, inevitable, or perhaps taking longer than we might think. The parable of the talents teaches us what we ought to be about in the meantime, that we ought to be involved, that we ought to be working, that we ought to be doing our master's will. So in other words, the parable of the ten virgins teaches us the importance of vigilance. The parable of the talents teaches us the importance of diligence. And what Jesus teaches his disciples here, what he teaches us here in this passage is this, that as Christians, we are about to be about the work that Jesus has given us to do until he returns. Now, the parable teaches several important lessons, uh, lessons having to do with our responsibility, with our opportunity, and also with our accountability, as we see in this passage. So first of all, it teaches us about our responsibility, that God has entrusted us with talents that he expects us to use. We see that in verses 14 and 15, where in the parable, Jesus likens the kingdom to a man going away on a journey, verse 14, he calls his servants together, he's getting ready to leave, and it says that he entrusts to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now, we want to be careful in studying this parable uh, that this is not an allegory. Each detail doesn't necessarily have a connection uh, with some spiritual truth or reality, but it's not hard to see the connection here between Jesus eventually leaving his disciples and his church here in the world and going away with the anticipation he would one day return. Well, that's the situation in the parable. And he gives his servants uh, talents. He gives more to one, five. He gives two to another. He only gives one to the third servant, uh, each according to his own ability. He's entrusted with diff these different amounts. Now, we hear the word talent. In English, typically the first thing that comes to mind is ability, some special uh, aptitude that we might have. And, and that's appropriate, as we'll see. But the word, as Jesus uses it here in Greek, and it's the same word, talenton, it doesn't Require a great deal to see how we derive our word from that Greek word, talenton, talent. Uh, but in Greek, the word had the idea not so much of ability, but of money. 
it was a measure of money, probably a measure of weight of money, whether that money was gold or silver. And for that reason, it's difficult to determine the value of the talent. Uh, its studies into the nature of it seem to indicate that it was a large amount of money, that a talent uh, by weight would be anywhere from 60 to 80 pounds. Now, if we're talking gold here, you can imagine that that's a vast amount of, of wealth amount of money, even silver, that would be a huge amount. Some have said it's better to think of it not so much in terms of, of dollar amounts, which of course with inflation and the change in currency and so forth is, is very tenuous anyway, but to think of it more in terms of earning power. Some have suggested a talent would be roughly the equivalent of what a day laborer in that day would earn in 20 years. Now, we've said a denarius is what a day laborer would earn in a day for a day's work. You know, the, the parable of the, the workers, you know, the 11th hour and so forth, the denarius. Well, a talent would be what a day laborer would earn in about 20 years. If we did want to just, for the sake of the experiment, put it into uh, American dollars, the average household, not individual, but average household income, medium, median uh, household income right now is about $50,000 or so. So if you take that and multiply it by 20, you're looking at a million dollars. Now, the first servant had five such talents. So if we wanted to put it in American money, again, not being dogmatic or saying this is absolute, but we might think of it in terms of about five million dollars, two million dollars, one million dollars. We're talking about a vast amount of money here significant amount of wealth here that was entrusted to them. Now, that's what it was then. And we look at it today and we say, well, what would the talent be today? Well, we could say uh, that certainly the monetary aspect of it still applies. A talent uh, that we are accountable for could be money that God has entrusted to us. And certainly, as we tend to think of talents as ability, it could also include abilities, that God has given to you, or spiritual gifts, which I would define as an ability that God uses to help build the kingdom or help bless other Christians or bring unbelievers into the kingdom and so forth. Uh, anything that God has given, any possibility, any responsibility that he's given to us, the fact that we have the Bible, the fact that we have so many opportunities and tools for studying the Bible, uh, is itself a responsibility that God has entrusted to us. So we might look at the material wealth God has given us, the abilities that God has given to us, uh, the, the uh, opportunities such as having the Bible, an opportunity to study it and to grow in our knowledge of it, all of these things as responsibilities that God has entrusted us with. Now, also notice that he gave some five, or he gave one five, one two, and one one, According to their abilities, you know, we, we sometimes say, well, in the United States, everybody's created equal. Well, not exactly. We are to be considered equal under the law, treated equally by the law, but it doesn't take long to look around and realize we're not all equal. And usually in different areas, some of us may be much stronger or more able or more capable than others. We all have areas we're stronger in, areas we are weaker in. 
Well, the, the master takes account of the abilities of each of these servants in, in entrusting to them what he does. So the responsibility here is that, as with these servants, God has entrusted to us these talents, using the word broadly as we've described it, to us that he has given to us to use. So that's our responsibility. Uh, and as you think about it, you might evaluate, you know, where has God blessed you? in terms of financial provision, in terms of abilities and skills or training or apparent spiritual gifts that he's given to you to use. In which areas are you strong? In which areas are you weak? So that's the responsibility. Second, we see here the opportunity to use what God has given for his glory and for the blessing and growth of the kingdom. This is our opportunity. We have the responsibility. It's been entrusted to us. But it's also an opportunity. Now, as we'll see, not even everyone in the parable thought of it that way. But we really ought to. Think of the things God has entrusted to you and the opportunities for usefulness and blessing to others that that represents. Every one of us, to one degree or another, in one area or another, has something to contribute to the life of the church, the life of the kingdom, the spread of the kingdom in the world. Now, we look at what the master did here. And giving and trusting this responsibility to his servants. And then we see what they did in verse 16. The one who received the five talents went at once and he began to trade with them. And he actually doubled his capital. He made five talents more. So he starts out with these, if you want to say, five million dollars. And he starts trading and working and investing and uh, putting it into use in business, and at some point he realizes he now has $10 million. He's doubled. He has five more talents. And so the same with the two talents. He took it, and he did the same percentage-wise. He had less to work with, but he accomplished the same result. Got a 100% return. He doubled his money by his trading, by his investing, by his business. But then we have the one. In verse 18, he who had received the one talent went, dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, that's not an unusual thing to do. If people have wealth, if people have treasures, especially if there's the threat of uh, invasion, uh, to take and bury that treasure in the ground in a known spot to conceal it, to preserve it, perhaps later to go back and, uh, and collect it. I mean, the, the, the fascination with buried treasure remains with us to this day. Um, last night, we were eating our pizza and watching Georgia Traveler. It's a slow Saturday night, but we enjoy it. They were talking about Washington, Georgia, where the, uh, the, the gold of the Confederacy passed through. And as it was accounted for, it was apparent that a significant portion of that gold was missing. And people go to Washington, Georgia, and its surrounding areas trying to locate the missing gold of the Confederacy. Uh, so pirates burying treasure, ships sinking with treasure, still holds a fascination for us today. But back then, uh, lacking a safe or safe deposit box or things like that, people would often bury uh, valuables that they had to protect it, to preserve it. And that's precisely what this man does with the one talent that is entrusted to him. So instead of putting it to use, instead of investing it, instead of engaging in business or trading or whatever, he takes it and he hides it. And so he preserves it. So three, two things here you can do with the money. You can take it and use it, 
with your abilities. You can take them and use them. The opportunities and responsibilities, take them and use them. Or you can hide it. You can bury it. Why would he do that? Well, we'll look at his motivation in just a minute, but basically you could say it's fear. He doesn't want to lose it. He wants to have it to be able to return. But he's afraid to do anything with it, perhaps for fear of loss. And so as we stop, we have to look at the responsibilities God has given to us in terms of what he's entrusted to us. But look at the opportunities. What are you doing with it? What difference are you making with it? How are you using what God has given to you? Again, whether in terms of material wealth, the wealth of ability or training or skill, uh, in terms of opportunities that you've had, how are you using that? How are you making a, taking advantage of that opportunity to be a blessing to the church, whether we're talking about this congregation or the church at large, the kingdom, to be a blessing to the world, even those outside the church, to minister to them, to help uh, share with them the love of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the mercy of Christ. How are you using the talents that God has given to you? You know, some people... Soon God may have blessed with more ability, given more talents, may have to choose. You know, sometimes people are good at different things, uh, whether in terms of things that they might pursue as a vocation or even as an avocation, but you have to pick. You can't do everything, and some people are gifted in, in several areas and have to decide which to pursue, which to invest themselves in. How do you choose? Well, I would suggest here's some questions to think about. Uh, one, uh, I think, important question for any Christian would be, what would advance the kingdom of Christ more? What would be more beneficial in advancing the kingdom and building, helping the Lord build the church? Uh, another question, what does the world need? Both of these point to uh, certainly the need for the gospel in the world, but how can we be a blessing to the world? Uh, which are you truly better at? You may be good at a number of things, but which are you really good at? Which are you really, uh, which are you really superior in? Where you may have several levels of ability, different areas of ability. Which are you really better at? And then finally, which do you enjoy the most? Frankly, I think we often enjoy the most what we're what we're really good at. It may be work at first. We may not even think we like it at first. But basically, we often enjoy doing what it what we prove to be proficient in doing. And so, those are some questions to think about. If you have to choose, some of you are young, have yet to start any kind of career or vocation. Um, those are things to think about. You know, what, what has God given you in terms of ability? What do you enjoy doing? Those sorts of things. What can you do that would help advance the kingdom of Christ? What does the world need? Some questions to think about as you look at the opportunities that God has given. But now we really come to the longest part of the parable, and that has to do with our accountability. We've seen the responsibility God has entrusted us with, with various responsibilities, we look at that in terms of opportunity. What can we do? How can we make a difference? How can we serve? But there's also, obviously, in this parable, accountability. These servants were not left on their own, but the day would come when they would have to once again meet with their master. And we see this beginning in verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants came. Now, I just point out, as we saw uh, earlier, Jesus said he did not know when he would return. Only the Father knew. However, Jesus does, both in this parable and the previous one, the ten virgins, indicate that it may be longer than anyone thinks. And certainly, if anyone was expecting Jesus' return within weeks or months or even years after his ascension into heaven, 
Both of these parables that Jesus taught seem to indicate that it may be longer than they thought. You know, the bridegroom was delayed. Here the master returns, as Jesus said, after a long time. So while he wouldn't give them specifics, he does seem to be hinting a little bit here to them, not to expect him to return necessarily right away. But it was a long time. And he came, and it says he settled accounts with them. The day of reckoning had come, the day for evaluation. And so we see our accountability in this, that we, too, will receive an evaluation from God as to our efforts. Well, let's look at uh, what happens here. First, you see with the first two servants, commendation and reward. Look at verse 20. They, they sort of follow the same pattern. In fact, almost identical wording. The, the, the one who had the five talents, the one who had the two talents, both come. They come with an eager report. Look at verse 20. He came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. You sense an eagerness. We can even say he's proud of himself. He's, he's, it's like a, a child who has done well and is eager to show his parents what he's done. He's excited about what he's done. Well, that's the sense you get here with the first and second servants. Uh, look, you gave me five, and I've got five more here to return to you. Look, you gave me two. I have two more to return to you. I doubled it. Here it is. So there's an eager report. They're, they're looking forward to meeting the master and telling him about what they've done. On the master's part, he commends them. Look at verse 21. And again, the same in verse 23. He says to them, well done, and outstanding, good job, good and faithful servant. He calls them good, good character calls them faithful in terms of their diligence, and he commends them. Well done. He also recognizes what they've done by specifically stating it. Verse 21, you have been faithful over a little. Now, does that give you some idea of the master's wealth? He gave the first servant $5 million and says, you've been faithful over a little. Wow. Wow. But he recognized it. You have been faithful. You've done well with the little I've given you. And that leads to increased responsibility. So commendation, recognition, uh, increased responsibility. Look at verse 21. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Now, that's a principle for this life, not just the life to come. You know, that as we are faithful where God has entrusted us uh, with a task or an opportunity, that he tends to expand that. He tends to take us into situations, whether it's in our vocation or avocation or ministry, where uh, having been faithful to little, he gives you more responsibility. And so that principle is at work here, but I also see that, and I think it primarily applies to a greater responsibility even in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's not just increased reward. We might think, boy, I've worked hard, and now my reward is, is to have more to do. Uh, but it's not that way. Notice what he also says. There's an invitation, commendation, recognition, increased responsibility, but an invitation. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, that's kind of an odd expression. What does that mean? Some have suggested it means a feast. Come in and, and join the feast. But the word there is joy, not feast. Um, probably means something like come and share in your master's joy. Uh, 
the increased responsibility is not going to be a burden. It's accompanied by joy. And so whatever the specific nuance is, the point is it's affirmation, it's reward. There is joy here to share in the master's joy. And certainly, as, as Christians, our relationship to God will be characterized by joy in him and joy with him. I love the end of Psalm 16, verse 11, where it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the Father says, Enter into the joy of your master. But that's not the full story. In fact, he spends more time talking to the third servant, who instead of receiving commendation and reward, receives rebuke and punishment. Look at verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward. And instead of an eager report, what does he do? He begins to make excuses. Verse 24. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Notice, first of all, his view of his master, a hard man, not a kind man, not a benevolent man, not a patient man, but a hard man, someone who is shrewd in business, who's able to reap a profit where he has not himself invested anything or risked anything. That's the view that he puts forth here of his servant. I was afraid. I was afraid of loss. I was afraid of you. I was afraid. And so here you have what is yours. That's the best he can say as I, as I give you back what belongs to you. No doubling, not even any increase, but simply returning what he had been given, uninvested, unimproved, unused. And he receives, instead of commendation, a rebuke. Look at verse 26. His master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Notice the contrast. Not good and faithful, but wicked and lazy. Not only is there denunciation, wickedness, slothful, but there's exposure. Look at verse, uh, again, verse 26. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Yeah, that's what you think of me? Now, the master's not necessarily agreeing with that. And notice he drops the, the adjective hard. He doesn't see himself perhaps as a hard man. But he's saying to this servant, if, if you see me that way, if you see me as making profits where I've invested nothing and risked nothing, then the very least you could have done is go get a CD at the bank and earn a little interest on the money. But he doesn't do that. He hasn't done that. And so basically he exposes the servant as lazy, unwilling to do even that much, and using the excuse of the sternness and the toughness of his master. But his master says, look, if you really believe that, you would have at least eked out some interest by depositing the money in a savings account. At the bank, instead of just going and burying it and earning nothing. I have to admit, it's interesting how Scripture applies. I actually have some money sitting in an account right now that I became very convicted I needed to <laughs> go on ahead and get it into something, earning a little bit more, perhaps. Um, I don't want to hear the Lord say, you ought to have invested it with the bankers. Uh, but that's the point here. He exposes him. It's just being lazy. It's just being unwilling to do what he ought to do. Now, suppose as a Christian, we're sitting here thinking, 
you know, I've got money, I've got talents, I've, got, I've had opportunities that I have not improved. I want to encourage you, before we get into the last part, and that is the punishment here, that the Lord, as he says in Joel, is able to replace the years that the locusts have eaten. It's not too late to begin investing yourself and all that God has given you and equipped you with in his service, in the service of the kingdom. But it's time to start. Maybe you need to go to him and say and ask his forgiveness and say, Lord, you know, I've let opportunities, I've let abilities, uh, I've let wealth just lie dormant, not investing it, not using it. Please forgive me and help me to see where I can be most useful in the church or in my neighborhood, in the world, in the kingdom, however. So I want to encourage you with that uh, as Christians. Uh, and the Lord can, uh, can perhaps make up the time because he's not a hard man. Because he is patient, because he is benevolent, because he is kind, because he is forgiving, because he is understanding. And so when we need to, we go to him and ask his forgiveness, ask for grace to begin to please him and obey him and serve him well. That wasn't the case here, uh, because he's really talking about something else. And we see the punishment in verse 28. The master, having uh, upbraided his uh, lazy servant, says, So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Strip him of it. You know, he's had it, he's done nothing with it. Give it to the guy who shows he knows what to do with it. So even what little he has is stripped away from him because he just let it lie dormant. He didn't do anything with it. And then Jesus uh, repeats the principle for that action in verse 29. To everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And I say repeats because Jesus has already said this back in chapter 13. Verse 12, he says to his disciples, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To them it has not been given. For the one, to the one who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. He's talking there about spiritual truth. To the one who has it and receives it, more will be given. To the one who doesn't and who rejects what light he has been given, even that would be taken away in judgment. And it's the same principle here. And then he's cast out, verse 30. And similar to the ten virgins who were, or the five virgins who were unprepared and were locked outside the wedding feast and were not allowed in because the master didn't know them, the bridegroom didn't know them, here the same. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I said earlier, this is about the visible church, which, as we discussed last week, is a mixed bunch. And this parable is a sifting parable, because what happens is, if we want to speak of it in terms of Christians, this last servant is exposed as an unbeliever. Why do I say that? Because Jesus would never speak of a Christian being cast into the outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the fate reserved for those who are not in Christ. That's not to say those who have not professed faith in Christ, because there are those who profess faith or are on the rolls of a church who may not be one of Christ's own. Their, their, their faith is not real, their conversion not genuine. But this does expose that servant uh, as, as an unbeliever because he's cast out. This would not be said of a Christian, of one of Christ's own, one for whom Jesus truly has died. However, it is important to say that even as Christians, we will undergo evaluation. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 
No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Jesus is, or Paul there rather, is clearly talking about Christians. He will be saved, but is this a Christian who invested the opportunities, uh, the, the, the responsibilities, and taken advantage of the opportunities that God has given? Or is this someone who squandered the opportunities away? Is he building with gold and silver? Is he building with hay and straw? A Christian life on the foundation of Jesus, someone who's trusting in Jesus. But there will be that evaluation. Salvation is not riding on it. You'll be saved, though, as through fire. But God will evaluate how you have taken advantage of those talents that he has given to you. James, in James chapter 2, says, Faith without works is dead. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. We, we know that's there, but uh, we tend to, especially as Reformed Christians, tend to go more with Paul. You know, Paul emphasizing justification by grace through faith alone. And some have even tried to pit James against Paul, which is ridiculous, of course. They're both preaching the same gospel, just making application of that gospel in two different situations. Paul to legalists, James to apparently antinomians who thought they could live any way they pleased and presume on God's grace. But even Paul himself speaks of the necessity of the good works of the Christian life. Some of you were in the men's Bible study last winter when we studied Titus. And it is striking to go through Titus and see how often Paul refers to the necessity of good works. Titus 2.7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and your teaching show integrity, dignity, and so forth to Titus. Chapter 2, verse 14 Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. 3.8, the saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. It's very closely echoes the parable of the talents. We don't want to be unfruitful. We want to devote ourselves to the good works that God has given us the opportunity to do with the talents, whatever those might be, that he has equipped us with to do those good works. And those are just in Titus. You go through First and Second Timothy, and that same theme is repeated. J.C. Ryle says, let us beware. Of a do-nothing Christianity, such Christianity does not come from the Spirit of God. Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor of Kidderminster, England, puts it this way. To do no harm is the praise of a stone, not of a man. Now notice in this parable that the unprofitable servant isn't charged with being a murderer. He's not charged with being a blasphemer. He's not charged with being a thief. Rather, he did nothing. That was his ruin. So instead, let us invest what God has given us in the lives of others for the glory of God, 
for the spread of the kingdom, for the good of this world, and yes, for our own joy. Let's pray. Father, we do ask your forgiveness for our failure, at least at times, to improve abilities, talents, resources, opportunities to your glory and to the spread of the name of Christ, to the benefit of those around us. Father, help us, as Paul wrote, to be Christians devoted to good works, not to earn salvation, but because we have it. We pray in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.